According to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the Scriptures. Join me one final time in Proverbs 17. I promise we will complete the chapter today if I have to keep you here till midnight. Actually, we're very close and may not even uh, fill an entire hour. Well, we'll see how that goes. Uh, much of what we're going to look at is actually going to be review uh, some redundant verses that come up at the end of the chapter that cover material we've already touched on from earlier verses in the chapter, so that helps. And then uh, then we can take a quick peek maybe at chapter 18 and see where we're going to get started for uh, for next week. God is spirit, he must be worshipped in spirit and in truth. Let's take a moment of silent prayer to make sure that we are filled with the Holy Spirit, that our living human spirits can receive what he teaches us. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning thankful for your truth, rejoicing in the blessing that is ours, Father, to obey your command. You command us to present ourselves before you as workmen needing not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. So here we are. We are presenting ourselves before you and asking for your faithfulness, Father, to rightly divide this word. Feed us and bless us, Father, we thank you in Christ's name. Amen. All right, and so um, I think last week we wrapped up the last of the he-whos that we were looking at. Are these the he-whos? Let's see, where did I put those? There it is. Whatever slide number this is. Number 24, all right? Proverbs 17, verses 19 through 21 feature the five he-whos, all with negative personal and public harm. And so as you're looking at these verses, uh, you've got he who loves transgression. That's not good. You've got he who raises his door, which is actually problematic as far as the Hebrew idiom goes, but we dealt with that. The third he who is he who has a crooked mind. Uh, He who number four is he who is perverted in his language. And so each of those four he who's gets basically half a verse. There's two he who's in verse 19, two he who's in verse 20. When we get to the fifth he who, he gets the verse all to himself because he has the longest of the developments. It's he who sires a fool. And then uh, that's the only he who in the verse because uh, it's a continuation in the B portion of verse 21 when it says, and the father of a fool has no joy. And so really it's the same he who. It's the same he who, but at different stages of the boy's life. Uh, when you're sired, uh, that's uh, that happens pretty young. <laughs> you know, uh, I was born at a very young age. Uh, but, the, uh, but then if you continue to be the fool... Uh, when you leave home, when you're out in public, when you represent, uh, when you stand before the Lord in your own generation, well, then that continues to be to the detriment of the father and the mother, whereby the joy is uh, is gone. It is sorrow in that in that capacity. So those are the five he who's, and uh, like I say, we wrapped that up last week with the subpoints uh, A, B, C, D, and E, dealing with those. So now we're ready to move on and finish the chapter, point 20. I have, this would be four slides later on that slide. There it is. The uh, believer's spiritual life condition has physiological impact, and we actually touched on this also 
last week, talking about the, the connection between your soul health and your spiritual health. It's very explicit in uh, 3 John and verse 2, where the prayer request is that your physical health and your well-being might match your soul prosperity. And uh, it really shows us the order in which we should be praying for these things. But beloved, I pray that in all respects you may prosper and be in good health just as your soul prospers. And so to, to base your, your physical health and your temporal life prosperity on your soul prosperity is, uh, is an interesting prayer request to say the least. In fact, it's normative when you view it in connection with these references that we see throughout the book of Proverbs. And so uh, such as we have it stated here in, in 1722, a joyful heart is good medicine, but a broken spirit dries up the bones. In both the A portion and the B portion of Proverbs 17.22, we recognize that your spiritual capacity, that the, the condition of your inner man will impact the uh, circumstances and details of the outer man. That uh, there is a physical benefit to a joyful heart. And there is a physical detriment to uh, the broken spirit. And so both directions, as you look at it, positive, negative, there's going to be an impact to, uh, to your health, to your physical life. And that's uh, acceptable. I mean, it's biblical. It's, it's, we accept it because God said it. It's true as far as it goes in the context of how it's given. We want to be cautious, though, that we don't go overboard and exceed what is written. Does that make sense? We have warnings in Scripture not to exceed what is written. And it abuses a text when you take it beyond the scope of its direct, of its direct context and if you take it to such a place that you find yourself violating other Scriptures. Because if you're going to abuse this passage in violating other Scriptures, then you're not being fair to the whole counsel of God's Word. And so uh, the way you might imagine. Uh, so we have other verses that talk about to take a, a, a little, Paul uh, tells Timothy to drink a little wine uh, for the sake of his frequent stomach ailments. Okay, And so we have to, we recognize that that also is a verse that's true in the context of which it's given. See, And so all of these passages that relate to a particular subject like doctors or physical health and so forth, uh, we can't emphasize one to the extent that we are denying the others. God is never false in any statement that he makes in any verse of the Bible. And so we can't read a joyful heart is good medicine and say, well, that's my license to never go see a doctor ever again, because all I have to do is just make sure I have a cheerful heart and I'm fine. The only medicine I need is a cheerful heart and I'm taken care of everywhere else. See, But there are churches and religions and different cults uh, that will be hostile, Jehovah's Witnesses for example, are very hostile to modern medicine or any kind of uh, uh, pharmaceuticals, any kind of drugs of, of that sort. Uh, and they, they, I believe, they, they're making those theological uh, decisions uh, by abusing uh, particular passages of Scripture. Same thing with uh, uh, Proverbs 15 and the three verses that we have here. Verse 13, verse 15, and verse 30. In 15.13 it's a joyful heart makes a cheerful face, but when the heart is sad the spirit is broken. Verse 15, all the days of the afflicted are bad, but a cheerful heart has a continual feast. That spiritually you can be, you can be throwing a party 
even though in earthly terms, yeah, there's some rough things going on, you know, in, uh, in, in those circumstances and details. Verse 30, bright eyes gladden the heart, good news puts fat on the bones. And uh, all of these passages are true as far as they go in and of themselves. Remembering, of course, that the pattern of Proverbs, it's a short, pithy statement. The nature of a proverb is that it presents a general principle that is the norm, that is the the normal uh, rule of thumb. But there are, of course, exceptions to every rule. And, And that's why we don't um, we don't claim these as uh, doctrines or promises. We accept them as principles. And uh, one of the best things you can ever do is learn how to rightly divide the word of truth whereby you don't confuse doctrines with promises and principles. And that's uh, so much harm gets done when, uh, when that's not made clear. Proverbs eighteen fourteen, The spirit of a man can endure his sickness, but as for a broken spirit, who can bear it? We talk about what can be physically survived, but not when uh, spiritually uh, the person has given up already. They've already surrendered to what they think is the inevitable, and uh, in which case then they don't survive what otherwise they could have survived in other circumstances. All right, so we have that, and I think we've covered that. Now, when we get to uh, verse 23, Proverbs 17:23, uh, we realize, wait a minute, we've already addressed this principle. It says, a wicked man receives a bribe from the bosom to pervert the ways of justice. And uh, this is what happens. And uh, it's just normal. It's called daily life in a fallen world. It's called uh, living in a, in a world with corrupt political officials. And that's the way it's going to always be until our Lord returns. And, and, and He will root out wickedness in His own administration morning by morning. Until then, we're going to have corrupt Judges, corrupt politicians, we're going to have uh, the circumstances for what they are. So I simply made a point out of uh, this in point 21 to try to streamline uh, some things. But really verses 23, 25, and 26 have already been addressed earlier in this chapter. Verses 23, 25, and 26 were already addressed earlier in this chapter. And I gave points of study and, and included these verses in those points. So uh, you already have point 8, point 15, and point 19 in your notes. And in those points uh, we've addressed, uh, we included verse 23, verse 25, and verse 26. Slightly out of order. Um, because really uh, we commented on when we were in verse 8 is when we included verse 23, when we were in verse 21, is when we included verse 25, and in uh, verse 15 is when we uh, included verse 26. And so what I should have done was reordered the point numbers. Point 8, point 19, point 15 would be the best order to put those points in to match up with verse 8, verse 21, and verse 15. So maybe I'll revise that for the printed notebook when it comes out. All right. So when we talk about a wicked man receiving a bribe from the bosom. And uh, here was the point that we gave on point eight. Bribery works in this present cosmos. It works. 
It works every time. I mean, it works like a charm. And sometimes you have to increase the bribe a little bit, or you have to find the right person who will take the bribe if, if you encounter somebody that won't take one. But by and large, it works. The right person in the right place with the right amount of money, it works every time. And that's the nature of this fallen world. It is, however, an offense against God's essence and, and His attributes of justice. And so here we see the reference to Proverbs 17.23, this verse we have this morning that we realize is uh, repeated from earlier in the chapter. Also Exodus 23.8, Deuteronomy 16, Deuteronomy 27. We looked at a lot of those verses and realized, of course, bribery is an offense. A bribery, God can't be bribed. Who could bribe God? And, and any bribery is a perversion of justice. Justice is supposed to be blind. Justice should rule according to an absolute standard. And the absolute standard should be the same for everybody, no matter who you are. Uh, you should fall under the law uh, equally. And that's uh, not only is that uh, biblical, I mean, that's just by virtue of, of who God is and how God operates. And uh, if a nation has a law that mirrors that, then we're in good shape. Uh, but like I say, uh, we have nations full of sinners and, uh, and those laws get, uh, get tweaked and adjusted and ignored selectively uh, in order to, uh, to uh, line their pockets and accomplish what they want to do. So the effectiveness of such things for this fallen world is normally undeniable except for the betrayal of adultery. The one thing for which really you can't buy your way out of it, you can't pay a fine, you can't is you know the 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 guilty party uh, or the innocent party the victim of the adultery offense he's not going to accept any uh, payment he's not going to accept restitution uh you uh you cheated on his him you know, on his wife and uh, there's no proverbs 635 discusses uh that that you can't pay a fine to uh to uh, ameliorate that situation all right back to then where we just were. So that's verse 23. Um, likewise, verse 25. A foolish son is a grief to his father and bitterness to her who bore him. Well, that was last week, wasn't it? And the week before when we were talking about verse 21. And uh, so uh, point 19 in your outline is going to cover the issues here. Um, obviously, we're, we raise up the children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. We obviously... Uh, serve as unto the Lord in training up these children. And we want to set the right example. We want to teach them the Word of God. We want to do everything we possibly can. But even the best parents in the history of parenting still uh, have given birth to a human child with their own volition. And that human child with their own volition uh, will often then be expressed in uh, ways that are contrary to how they've been brought up. And uh, the fact is, is that we're all sinners and uh, sometimes they express those things in that way. And so back up there to point 19. He who sires a fool and the father of a fool discussed the difference between the kasil and the naval. But the, uh, the other Proverbs throughout, we, I mean from Proverbs 10 to Proverbs 17 to Proverbs 19, we've seen repeatedly whereby a child can be a joy to their parent or the child can be a sorrow, a grief to their parents. And, uh, and it comes down to the, this, this whole question about are they walking with the Lord? Are they, are they applying principles of wisdom? Are they living out wisdom principles as unto the Lord in their own day and age? That's the criteria. It's not 
the career they ended up with or the college degree they earned or the square footage of the house or the multiple houses they have in various places. It's not their tax bracket. It's nothing in the secular realm that gives joy to the parents more so than to see your children walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to see my children walking in the truth. And uh, and this comes up uh, again and again and again throughout the Proverbs. Verse 26. And I don't mind repeating this a little bit here this morning. The redundancy is sanctified. God put it in this chapter twice, so we can talk about it twice. Uh, But here we have it. All right, verse 26. It is also good, not good, I'm sorry, not good, to find the righteous. You know, you don't look at a law-abiding person and say, hey, you're following the speed limit. Here's your ticket. (laughs) Hey, look at you. You parked your car illegally. There'll be a fine for that. And uh, that's just, again, a perversion of justice, to find the righteous, nor to strike the noble for their uprightness. And uh, when, when your culture punishes you for doing what is right, that's a demonstration that your culture is morally bankrupt, that your culture is under the discipline of God because of its fixation upon unbiblical principles. And so take a stand for, for the biblical norms of marriage, or the biblical norms of sexuality, or the biblical norms of anything. Take a stand for biblical norms and standards, and you find more often than not these days there's a price to pay. And it's only now starting to cross into the legal realm where you can actually be sued and, and there's other uh, f- financial consequences that can happen for standing for the truth. But uh, I don't know if it's my natural inborn pessimism or if it's just my faithfulness to the Scripture. Uh, I believe it's going to get worse and worse and worse. I don't see the trend reversing itself, uh, not biblically anyway, in uh, the pattern that we have. It seems to be a monodirectional slide Anyway, we uh, address this also. Uh, This came about in verse 15. And uh, he who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous, both of them alike are an abomination to the Lord. A miscarriage of justice happens when the guilty party gets off. And uh, likewise, a miscarriage of justice happens when the innocent is condemned, when he uh, uh, goes to prison for something he didn't do. All right, so we address that. Where did we address that? We address that on this slide. Inverted justice. This was point 15 in your outline. Inverted justice is not just a perversion, it is an abomination. And uh, you notice the reference there is both Proverbs 17, 15, as well as verse 26, this redundant verse in the chapter. Also Isaiah 5, 20. Boy, I quote that one a lot because God pronounces woe, woe to those who call good evil and evil good. God is the one that, uh, that did this. God is the one that determines the, the vocabulary and the definitions. And uh, what God calls good is good. What God calls evil is evil. He planted that tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And that's what started this whole mess, <laughs> okay, as far as us fallen humans are, are concerned. And so when a fallen human feels like it's in his purview to redefine what God has defined, we're in trouble. We are in absolute trouble. And uh, of all the things that God gave Adam the permissive will, God delegated responsibilities 
to name the animals. That shows it's within his realm. He named the animals. He also named the woman. And that's, uh, you know, something I don't think feminists like, but it's also true. He named the woman, just like he named the animals. But he didn't name the rivers. He didn't name the land. He was not free to rename or redefine what God defined. He didn't rename good and evil. Even when he ate the fruit and violated the, uh, and, and had his eyes open to know the, the uh, knowledge of good and evil, it was not his purview to redefine them or to rename them. Didn't, he didn't define marriage. He didn't define parenting. He didn't define all these things that God defined. We must uh, submit to God's definition. And if you, call, if you twist them around, if you call good evil and evil good, God pronounces woe to, uh, to the creature. That's Isaiah 5 and verse 20. All right, well now we got a verse. You'll notice verse 23, 25, and 26 are the, uh, the redundant verses. What about verse 24? Well, I'm glad you asked, because that's what we're going to look at next. Verse 24, Wisdom is in the presence of the one who has understanding, but the eyes of a fool are on the ends of the earth. Wow, there is a lot to, uh, to, to dig out of this one. Look at this. So we'll give this to you under point 22. And, and really the A and B emphasis, uh, they, they come together in a marvelous way. So wisdom is in the presence of the one who has understanding. It's nearby and it's knowable and you know who to ask. It's nearby as opposed to the ends of the earth. Wisdom should be in close proximity. In the presence of, that is in the face of. It's right before your face as opposed to the ends of the earth. Looking everywhere in the world except the Bible for your answers. Okay, And it's amazing how to the, the lengths that people will go to to avoid what's staring them in the face. And what's staring them in the face, I think, is the witness of uh, natural revelation, the creation. It's, it leaves us without excuse. It's undeniable. It's in our face. And then the people God puts in our uh, proximity, starting with our parents, okay, wisdom should be in close proximity. That's 1724a. Not vainly pursued everywhere to the ends of the earth. That's verse 24b. And both the A part and the B part, we've got some cross-references we can bring into focus to, to see how the Scripture plays this out. But it's interesting to me. The things that God has blessed us with, including His wisdom, He has revealed Himself. He's not far from each one of us. And He has put testimony right before us, right before our face. Again, the Hebrew expression of 24a there, in the presence of, it's in the face of. It's right before the face. Right before the face of the one who has understanding. So if you're not the one who has understanding, whose problem is that? Who's, yeah, whose fault is that? When it was right in front of your face, why didn't you look at it? Why didn't you learn from it? Why aren't you living your life based on that? But instead, even though it's right there in front of your face, you want to look to the left. You want to look to the right. You want to look all over the place. You want to, uh, you want to go to the ends of the earth rather than accept the plain truth of the Word of God that's right there in front of your face. And I find that to be characteristic not only of uh, 
of course, the unbeliever, they're, they're hopeless. They're, they're living in this world and according to the, the course of this age. But the carnal believer as well who imitates that, that would rather search everything under the sun for all the vanity that's under the sun as opposed to the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. How simple it, it is and how simple it is that God designed it in this way. So, here's... Uh, what we want to look at here. Let's take a look at Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 30. And this may be, is a, serves as a, as a sweet uh, parallel to uh, our verse this morning because you'll note, let me get there, Deuteronomy 30. Because this parallels both the A part and the B part of Proverbs 17:24. All right. We're going to key in on verse 14 really as uh as the parallel to uh to 24a. But then we'll also notice that the verses that lead up to that verses 11 through 13 are really speaking to the the 24b that we're looking at. See? So I'll show you what we're looking at here. So Deuteronomy chapter 30 and um, part of Moses in preparing uh, Israel to continue on after his death, and part of uh, really his uh, his final ministry before he sings this song and departs. But uh, in Deuteronomy thirty, uh, verses eleven and following, I guess we can skip over the first ten verses here. But you'll note. As verse 1 says, it shall be when all of these things have come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind in all the nations where the Lord your God has banished you. This, this chapter is actually powerful and gets ignored a lot, but the blessings and the curses that were rehearsed are actually prophetic of, of where they are today. Israel is in, in mostly in dispersion today. They've not yet been regathered. But the tribulation will humble them and they will, they will return to the Lord with all their heart. He will regather them as He promised. They will, uh, they will have uh, the Messiah to come and rescue them. And this is uh, what's being promised here. In uh, verse 2 it says, And you return to the Lord your God and obey Him with all your heart and soul according to all that I command you today, you and your sons. Then the Lord your God will restore you from captivity. The present nation state of Israel is not in fulfillment of this because they have not returned to the Lord their God. The Knesset, the, the prime minister, is not the son of David sitting on the throne of David. They're not on positive volition to Jesus Christ as their Messiah. It's going to take tribulation to humble the nation and bring them to that point of repentance. Alright, so this is uh, the context for chapter 30. Verse 6 says, The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, so that you may live. When they enter into the millennial kingdom, they will never have another apostasy. Even though all the nations will, will march against them, even though all the nations will surround them at Gog Magog, the Jewish people stay faithful at the end of the thousand years. Can you imagine that? For the first time in their history, it's the Jewish nation that stays faithful while the Gentiles uh, are surrounding Jerusalem and demanding the abdication of Jesus Christ. So, um, 
the prosperity that comes through that. Verse 11, For this commandment which I command you today is not too difficult for you, nor is it out of reach. So we start in 11 through 13 with these distance verses. It's not too difficult for you, nor is it out of reach. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will go up to heaven for us to get it for us and make us hear it that we may observe it? What a concept, right? As if somebody could earn their way to heaven and then come back and tell them how to, how to, how to get there. And uh, these, these verses, by the way, get quoted in Romans. This is, this is a part of what gets misunderstood in Romans 10 when people want to abuse that text. So uh, we should pay attention here and do ourselves a favor. So the point being is that God's wisdom is not far away. He has made it accessible. He has made it, He has provided for it. Anyone that's on positive volition, they will hear the, the gospel. They will hear the word of God. Blessed are they who hunger and thirst after righteousness. They will be satisfied. God the, God the shepherd will, will provide for that every time. All right. So it's not too difficult for you, nor is it out of reach. In any religious system that wants to have a system of works, they want to have challenges. You want to have, you know, 12 tasks of Hercules. You want to have some kind of, uh, I mean, this has always been the case from ancient world to modern times. You get this religious system whereby, okay, there's, there's hoops to jump through and difficulty to overcome. And then the legalists can feel real good about themselves because they did better than the, than the guy that didn't do so well. And, uh, and God says, no, my, my, my grace plan is not like that at all. It's not too difficult, nor is it out of reach. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will go up to heaven for us to get it for us and make us hear it that we may observe it? Nor is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will cross the sea for us to get it for us and make us uh, hear it that we may observe it? And, and yet there's a tendency, fallen humanity wants to uh, just pursue a system whereby it's so far, it's so difficult, it's so hard. <laughs> Remember when uh, Naaman the Syrian, right? It was, he was told to just go wash here in the river and his, his leprosy would be clear. And he got all offended. And Elisha, and he was like, what are you offended for? You know, if I would have assigned you some great task, you would have done it. You would have crossed the oceans, and you would have climbed the highest mountain, you would have done all these other things. But because I just said wash and be clean. It was too simple and he got too offended. And uh, do we not experience the same thing today? We preach a simple gospel and we get accused of preaching cheap grace. We get accused of, oh, that's too easy. Well, how hard do you want to make it? Because God is not in the business of making it hard. He's in the business of making it easy. Putting it right there, making it accessible. And if you want to know you can find. Seek and ye shall find. Ask and ye shall receive. Knock and it will be opened. Anyway, this is the, the issue here. Now, that's, I think, verses 11, 12, 13 really um, line up well with what this fool is doing in Proverbs 17, 24b. Right? The eyes of a fool are on the ends of the earth. He's just looking everywhere. 
He's all over the place. He will scour everything under the sun, except the Bible, of course. He will look everywhere except where the real answers are. And isn't that just typical? And yet, it's in your face. The wisdom is in the face. It's right there in your face. And so the one who has understanding is the one that's humble enough to just simply take God at His word. To accept what God has put in His face and to trust the faithfulness of God who has revealed Himself. And that lines up well now with the 14th verse here. The solution to what Moses is saying in Deuteronomy 30. He says, but... It's not, it's not, it's not, but here's where it is. The word is very near you, in your mouth and in your heart that you may observe it. In your mouth and in your heart that you may observe it. And this, uh, (laughs) it's wonderful. The imagery on this is great. So, you know, you think about what's closest to you and how close can you get to something Well, you can be pretty close to something, but if you put it in your mouth, that's even closer, (laughs) okay? And when you digest it, when you process it, when when not only do you take in the Word of God, you eat it, uh, but now it's in your heart. Now it's so internalized, okay? And so, you know, are are we eating what we're hearing? Are we digesting the Word of God? Are we internalizing it? Are we consuming it? As it says, uh, you know, with humility, receive the word implanted that's able to save your soul. Are we chewing? Are we feasting on the word of God? Is it in our mouth? And then, are we? Are we? Uh, is it in our heart? Is it shaping us the way it's designed to? So that's the order of it. There, in your mouth and in your heart. Now, as beautiful as this passage is, um, sadly. Because Paul adapts this in Romans 12, I mean Romans 10. Paul adapts this very text and he takes this in your mouth and in your heart uh, poetry, he takes this in your mouth and in your heart imagery. I mean, nobody's physically chewing this morning while I'm, while I'm speaking, but you are spiritually chewing and you, it's in your mouth, it's in your heart, or it should be, Okay. But Paul takes this language and then he uses it. It becomes his um, uh, outline then in, uh, in Romans 10 when he talks about um, with the heart and with the mouth and, and believing and confessing. Let's just look at Romans 10 quickly. It's not in my notes or really is extra for you this morning. No extra charge. Romans 10. And uh, the desire that he has for Israel's salvation. They have a zeal, but it's not in accordance with epinosis. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. This is why God's working out his plan for the church while Israel is presently uh, in unbelief. Christ is the end of the law of righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes that the man who practices the righteousness which is based on the law shall live by that righteousness. But the righteousness based on faith speaks as follows. 
And here is where he is going to adapt what we just read in Deuteronomy chapter 30. And he says this is all about walking by faith. This is about embracing the faith that's right there in front of you, not going to the ends of the earth. The righteousness based on faith speaks as follows. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. He's actually adapting Deuteronomy 30 and a passage from, I think it's Habakkuk somewhere, um, to bring Christ up from the dead. No, it's not from Habakkuk. Anyway, this is an adaptation from Deuteronomy chapter 30. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching. So he adapts that in your mouth, in your heart language and puts the gospel out there. He says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. But you understand why people abuse this and they try to turn salvation into a two-step process and that belief is not enough, that you also have to confess and that, that you can have some people who believe but don't confess or some people that... And they just try to make this so dumb and complicated. Even, even though this is the only passage of Scripture where everywhere else is just believe. Believe, 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 believe. This is the one place that anybody can point to that has a believe and a confess and they want to they get weird with it. They want to get weird with it because they're not doing their homework in Deuteronomy chapter 30. But anyway. All right. Well, that's beyond the point of what we're talking about here. Wisdom should be in close proximity. It should be right there in your face. It should be nearby because God is not in the business of hiding. He's in the business of revealing. God is the creator and God is a communicator. God spoke and the universe came into existence. All right, let's see a few more of these. Micah 6 and verse 8. Micah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum. Micah 6, 6, he says, uh, With what shall I come to the Lord and bow myself before the God on high? Shall I come to Him with burnt offerings, with yearling calves? Does the Lord take delight in thousands of rams, in 10,000 rivers of oil? In other words, if I'm going to approach God and worship, what do I bring and why do I bring it? I want to sacrifice, but I want to sacrifice appropriately, biblically. I can't impress him with what I'm bringing. Is he really going to be dazzled with a thousand rams or 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I present my firstborn for my rebellious acts, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? He is a God of proximity. He is a God who desires this intimacy and this fellowship and this walk. He was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. That was the normal practice until Adam and Eve uh, sinned and fell and sowed fig leaves for themselves and hid and decided, uh, you know, to invent hide and seek. 
or whatever they decided to, uh, well, they were naked. And the God who desires intimacy, that nakedness was a problem now. And, uh, and even when they sowed the fig leaves, I think there was still a part of them that said, this doesn't cut it, uh, we're still naked, we better hide. And uh, yeah, but he's a God that's nearby. And what does he want? We're not going to impress him with our offerings. We're not going to impress him. Even when we're following the biblical mandate, it's the heart of obedience that pleases him, not the, not the ritual. Not the liturgy, not the, the sacrifice for its own sake. It's the heart that brings the sacrifice. So we can appreciate that. How about Acts 17? In the New Testament, we have Acts 17. And uh, people that think, oh, it's all this mysterious. No, he's nearby and he's knowable. And. Um, He's preaching the, the sermon on Mars Hill. He's preaching to these people that built an altar to the unknown God. And he says, let me tell you something. This unknown God, you want to know him? You can know him. Let me tell you about this God you don't know. He's nearby and he's knowable. And he doesn't need, we don't need to feed him. He's not hungry. He doesn't need anything that we can do. So, verse 23. Paul stood up in the midst of the Oropagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you're very religious in all respects. Now you've got to get saved. Being religious doesn't get you anywhere. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. We can fix ignorance. We have the information. The God who made the world and all things in it, since He is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is He served by human hands as though He needed anything, since He Himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And He made from one man, or one blood, or one... I don't know if King James had blood there, but He made from one every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. All of humanity is descended from Adam and Eve. All of humanity is Adamic. That's why racism is insane. That's why all of, we're all humanity, whatever your skin color, we're all in Adam. He made from one every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. That's why Satan hates boundaries. He hates borders because God designed them. And the appointed times, when a nation rises, when a nation falls. Satan hates that too. He'd like to accelerate certain nations in their fall. Well, that's in God's hands, not Satan's hands. And so there are appointed times and there are appointed boundaries. And in all of this, I mean, we can, this is God's sovereignty, but his wisdom unfolding, and it's not arbitrary, it's not without a purpose or a design. And so, you know. Arnold Toynbee can write the rise and fall of the Roman Empire or whatever. Other authors can write different things. Why does a nation rise? Why does a nation fall? Why is this Texas and not Comanche, Comancheria, whatever they called it, the Comanche lands? Well, because their time was done. In the sovereignty of God, their time was done. And when it's time for the United States to be done, the United States will also be done and this will be called something else. Okay? 
That's his sovereignty. But now notice, there's a purpose. And the purpose says that they would seek God. That they would seek God. And so the primary, uh, I, th- I believe, the primary criteria by which a people group is removed and a new people group is given a territory is the potential for gospel preaching, for the Word of God to be taught. When there's no more positive volition and there's never going to be any more positive volition, they are removed. There's no purpose to keep them around. That they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for Him and find Him though He is not far from each one of us. Notice He's nearby and He's knowable. He's not far from each one of us. My, my best friend from childhood was born in a, in a hut in a little village in the middle of nowhere and in the jungles of Indonesia. And in the sovereignty of God, he was saved. He was brought, well, not, not saved as a child, but well, yeah, as a younger child. But the, but the fact is his grandfather carried him through the jungle, took him to some American Christian missionaries. They brought him to America. He got saved and he grew up in the same church I grew up in. And uh, two years younger than me, they think. They don't exactly know his birthday. They, they took a guess based upon his size, but then they figured, you know what? We think we're off by a whole year here because we think he was just malnourished and, and was really older than, than uh, we thought at first. So God only knows when his birthday was or when how old he is. Anyway, the point is, because you'll get people that'll mock Christianity and say, well, what about the native who never heard the gospel or never, you know, what about the Western Hemisphere before the before Columbus and blah, blah, blah. And, and they have all of these, they're really not legitimate criticisms. There are answers for every last one of them. The fact is, is God can get the gospel to anybody that's positive. That if there's someone who would have been positive, God can send an angel long before Columbus ever sailed there. And uh, other uh, capacity there. All right. Where am I? Oh, Athens, Mars Hill, verse 27. He is not far from each one of us, for in Him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said. Quoting a pagan poet here. For we also are His children. So wisdom should be in close proximity because God is nearby and God is knowable. And the fact is, as this fool, wisdom is in the face of the of the uh, of the wise you could be that you could just accept what god has put in your face accept the parents he gave you accept the pastor he gave you accept the the provision he's made because he's craft he's placing you where he wants you for his service and don't fall for the don't fall for the tendency of of humanity to be dissatisfied with what god provided because you want to look for something better you want to look for something that's that's sexier, jazzier, that's more, uh, you know, uh, pop trendy with with what the crowd's going with. You know, we want a king like all the other nations have, or whatever. And uh, there's just that human tendency to be dissatisfied with what God's given you. Hebrews twelve verses one and two. He doesn't say, "Run whatever race you feel like." Yeah. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, notice the proximity. <laughs> it's surrounding us. 
we have witnesses. We have brothers and sisters with doctrinal priorities and they're everywhere, right here, right where we are. Thank God for them and uh, run with endurance. Let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that's set before us. It's in our face, just like Proverbs seventeen twenty four. in your face. There it is. Say, well, I don't like this. I want to run that race over there. Now, I want to run that race. Okay? I want that job instead of my job. I want that church instead of my church. I want that woman instead of my wife. I want that. You know, there's always this dissatisfaction. And God has made the, the, the perfect provision for His perfect will, for His perfect Son. And here we have it. Verse 2, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith who for the joy set before Him. Look what Jesus did. The joy was set before Him. He didn't look around and see what the alternatives were and check out other things and consider. You know, for a brief moment He he could have said, not my will but Thy, or not Thy will but mine be done. And He rejected that. He said no. For the joy set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. You know, we have Scripture we have divine guidance. We have the people He's provided for us. In our, starting with our parents, if they're believers in the Word of God, but with our pastor, with our, our church family, with uh, those in proximity, and the wisdom they can supply, the encouragement they can provide. And I certainly don't need to, you know, run to the ends of the earth and pursue everything else under the sun. I think one final example of this too is uh, in Matthew 23, 15, vainly pursuing things everywhere to the ends of the earth. Jesus addressed this when He was talking to the Pharisees. Matthew 23, 15, He said, boy, you guys are a piece of work. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. And there's several of these, seven or eight of them depending on how you count these. I think verse 14 uh, is not original to Matthew, but that's all right. Verse 15, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel around on sea and land to make one proselyte, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Boy, doesn't that just say it? That just lays it out. You travel around on sea and land. Look at, look at the instability. Look at the distance. Look at the, the, uh, the, the Herculean task mindset that you have that says you're going to outdo your peers. You know, think about Saul of Tarsus. He was going to go all the way to Damascus to bring back folks because he was outdoing his contemporaries. And then when you've accomplished this great task and you're bragging about it, what have you really done? And what have you done to those other people? Now they've got to outdo you. That's the problem. Is it never stops. Your disciples have to exceed what you were able to achieve. And then their disciples are going to have to exceed what they were able to achieve. It just never stops. Whereas in grace, you run with endurance the race is set before you. And you're not compared to your father's generation or your grandfather or whatever. 
You're not bummed out because uh, you, you, you know, think about Jacob and his um, lament, his pathetic carnality when he's standing before Pharaoh and Pharaoh wants to know how old he is. And he says, few and unpleasant have been the years of my sojourning, nor have they attained to the years of my father's. You know, and in terms of Abraham and Isaac, Jacob was a was a, a disappointment to himself. In any event, the uh, trying to outdo the next guy or whatever else, and you know, think about what a basket case I would be if I tried to live up to RB Theme or tried to live up to Ralph Braun or tried to live up to uh, Emil Schmidt or any. You know, what what kind of a useless, stupid, insane thing is that? Just be you and your generation and, and be amazed that he can do what he does with the, 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 the fools that he uses, right? It's all it's what he chooses, the foolish things to shame, to shame the wise. All right, so this is what we deal with here. Wisdom should be in close proximity, should be before your face, not vainly pursue, not looking around. Look, that, that, the looking around, that wandering eye is just the... the, the proof that the the soul isn't satisfied. It's just proof that this person's not stable. Why is he looking around? Why is he checking out this thing? Checking out that thing? Can't be checking out anything. Keep your eyes fixed on the Lord. Check him out. Finally then, the chapter ends with uh, two verses about shutting your mouth. Two verses about wisdom knows when best to keep your mouth shut. So verse 27 and verse 28. He who restrains his words has knowledge and he who has a cool spirit is a man of understanding. And so wisdom can, when you've been provoked, wisdom can cause you to, well, slow things down, be swift to hear and slow to speak. Go ahead and put the brakes on. Uh, Stop. You don't want to just fire back with your carnality. Go ahead and, you know, take a moment with the Lord. Make sure you're in fellowship, and then maybe just don't say anything. Just let it sit there. Um, even a fool, you, you can imitate this even if uh, you don't know any better. Even a fool, when he keeps silent, is considered wise. Sometimes silence is your best answer because uh, just opening your mouth is going to lead to trouble. When he closes his lips, he's considered prudent. And uh, sometimes people will just assume that you're wise because you're not responding. Well, anyway, sometimes it's best just to keep your mouth shut. And uh, Job, another verse that speaks to this, Job 13 and verse 5. And uh, Job's kind of sick and tired of of, uh, what these critics have been telling him. And so starting in chapter 12, he's dishing it back. And then in verse 13, he chapter 13, he continues. He's still dishing it back. And uh, he says, in verse 4, he says, "You, You smear with lies. You're all worthless physicians. Oh, that you would be completely silent and that it would become your wisdom. (laughs) <laughs> you know, out of everything you told me so far, none of it's worth anything. You should just go ahead and shut up now. 
And that, it would become your wisdom. So please hear my arguments and listen to the contentions of my lips. And now he's just going to keep throwing it back at him. He's, he's become the fault finder by this time. He's already off the rails and uh, committed the sin that God convicts him for at the end of the book when he calls him the fault finder, contending with the Almighty. All right, now the wisdom of Sirach is not Bible. It's not God-breathed. It's not inspired. It's not, you know, we don't accept it as we do with Scripture, but it is a testimony to the wisdom literature of the intertestamental period it was uh, written by Jewish uh, rabbis and, and, uh, and folks. And much of it replicates a lot that's in the Proverbs and, and so forth. And, and so Sirach chapter 20, verses 5 through 17. Whoops, which I was supposed to make clickable. Failed to make clickable. Sirach 20, 5 through 7. Did anybody bring an apocrypha with them this morning? Let's see if I can pull it up. Here we go. Sirach 20, verses 5 through 7. All right, this is not the Bible, but this is Jewish literature in between the Old Testament and the New Testament, and it also is in agreement with Proverbs, with Job, with biblical truth. And I find it curious. There is one that keepeth silence and is found wise, and another, by much babbling, becomes hateful. <laughs> you know, while he was silent, he was nice enough, but he just kept babbling and babbling, and people just said, that's enough. We hate this guy. But the one who keeps silent, yeah, we can consider that he's wise. Some man holdeth his tongue because he hath not to answer, and some keep silence knowing his time. A wise man will hold his tongue till he sees opportunity, but a babbler and a fool would regard no time. He has no sense of timing whatsoever related to that. He that useth many words shall be abhorred, and he that taketh to himself authority therein shall be hated. Anyway, like I say, it's not Bible, but it is uh, largely harmonious with what Proverbs and Job are talking about. And it just made me laugh, so I thought I'd share it with you here this morning. All right, well, that's chapter 17. We'll come back next week and get our first look at chapter 18. And uh, the Pericope heading says, uh, contrast the upright and the wicked. Well, jeepers, that's what chapter 17 said. That's what chapter 16 says, what chapter 15 said. All right, so yes, more of the same. We'll be continuing on, Lord willing and rapture pending. Father, I thank you for truth. I thank you for this Proverbs series. And Father, help us to study and learn and grow. It's not a, it's not a Pauline epistle, and we're not exegeting like we do in a, in a, in our Colossians series or even Hebrews at this point, Father. But uh, you didn't design Psalms that way. You didn't design Proverbs that way. And uh, and so we're learning how to study in a different mode, and we're learning how to accept these uh, short pithy statements. And uh, when there's redundancy, we thank you for it. And we realize that uh, we have to learn these things over and over and over again. So thank you, Father, for being faithful. I thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.